Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. Good morning and welcome, Grace Point. If you don't know me, I'm Sky Rose. I've been going to this church for about 18 years now, so I was basically raised here. Uh, My husband, on the other hand, just started coming a few months before we went through first steps together. That was something that we wanted to do um, before we got married. And so here, I'll let him introduce himself. Hello, everyone. I'm Logan Rose, and we've been married for eight months as of yesterday. Yeah. And as one of the newly married couples in the church, we are going to read from the passage that Mike and Lloyd will be preaching from today. If you'll read with us, uh, Ephesians. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, or that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Y'all can be seated. Thanks, Sky. Thanks, Logan, for sharing with us the word. Has anybody else been married under eight months in the room? Oh, we have another couple over here. All right. How long have you been married? Seven months. All right. Very good. Uh, You're up next week, okay? No, I'm okay. Uh, So, anyway, it's awesome to have... Uh, I've known Sky for obviously a lot of years being a part of the church and also being connected in other ways. And so it's so awesome to, to see their, their, their love relationship form and to become what it is because here's the thing about marriage is marriage, unlike anything else that I can think of, brings out the flesh the worst in us. All right. But at the same time, their marriage, unlike anything else, can so represent the church and so represent Christ in incredible ways. So it's kind of like this. It's the best of times or the worst of times uh, whenever you look at marriage. And that's just the fact. We get to decide what it's going to be. Mike and I have been in this beautiful, sometimes incredible, sometimes a crucible <laughs> thing called marriage for 31 years. Huh? For 31 Okay, yeah, 31 years. I knew that all along. We're going to have an argument right <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah, <on> <laughs> all right, very good. In front of God and everybody. Yes. And the thing is, is, is we can like look back and we can look at our marriage and we can just, we could give words to each of the different kinds of landscape that, that we've traveled through. So the first landscape that we would call it, we would call it ideal. 
So before we got married, like we were believers following Christ, we thought, man, we've got this like made. We went through counseling and even though they would point out things, we're like, we're low maintenance people. Like this is going to be ideal. We've got this. We had this fairy tale kind of perfect marriage in our mind. And then we got married. And the next landscape I would call unreal. Like it was much more steep. The landscape was much more rocky. Turns out he was much more self-centered and high maintenance than I thought he was. I'm a diva. (laughs) The thing is, is like when I confronted him about his high maintenance and self-centeredness, it turns out he thought I was equally, if not more, high maintenance and self-centered. Anybody in here, like you understand this? And so you find yourself thinking, this is unreal. Like we are never going to survive this. And yet, as we move forward, we landed in the landscape of real, where you begin to learn to navigate the terrain together, where yes, it's rocky, and yes, sometimes you end up circling back to where you have been, but you find this place that is incredibly rigorous, and yet at the same time, it's rewarding. And then the other landscape that we find ourselves in every now and then and more. We dart into it and then dart back out. <laughs> and, and, but the more we're married and the mm-hmm. older we get, yeah. I think we land there a little bit more often, is it surreal. And it's that place where you find that moment and I like look at him and I was like, I, I couldn't love you any more than I love you right now. And sometimes all you think is like, wow. Because you have no other words to describe it. I think the word that we, we could even use is it's mysterious. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. But what happens is sometimes when something is profound, it feels mysterious, and we don't know how to explain it, we dumb it down. So Chris Rock comedian, not a theologian, but he said this. He said, you can be single and lonely or you can be married and bored. As if those are the only two options that we know how to grasp hold of. And here's what I want to propose to you today is that you can be single and yet as a Christ follower, you can be mysteriously satisfied. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this. He says, look, to those of you who are single or those of you who are unmarried and widowed, it is good to remain single. But to those of you who are married and you're a Christ follower, I want to say this to you, that it is absolutely possible to be overwhelmingly satisfied with this marriage that is profoundly a mystery. Yeah, when, 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 if you lose the mystery of the marriage, marriage isn't the problem. Um, there is other problems. It's the worst of us that's coming out at that point because marriage itself is a mystery and it shouldn't be boring. And we're constantly learning. We're 31 officially years married. Yes. You got it right. And we're only a month away from 32. So if I throw 32 out every now and then, uh, then please, uh, I think we'll make it another month. And so um, 32, 31, somewhere in there. And, but we're still building. We're still renovating. We're still remodeling. We're still taking out the trash. Uh, we're still unpacking our wounds. We're still dealing with our fallen nature. It's still a work in 
progress all the way. And we're still needing God to interrupt our life, ourself, with his grace and his goodness and his love and his mercy. Because just like I need it in my own individual life, we need that grace, that mercy, that love in this right here. Which, again, this whole series has been about the but God, the God interruptions in our life. And so we're kind of putting the end of this part of the series and pick up Ephesians 6 in the new year. But I just want us to understand that, see the impact of this, that when God's grace and his mercy and his love impacts my individual life, that it doesn't just stay with me. And it's not just talking about heaven into the future. It literally impacts our relationships. It impacts our parenting. It ends up how we show up on the job, and it impacts our marriages. Now, you got to understand, when Paul is writing this, he is being incredibly countercultural. Much like when you read it today, it seems very countercultural. But maybe on two different ends of the spectrum. One of those is that he's very, very biblical with that, which sounds like an oxymoron because he's already biblical. He's the writer of the uh, so much of the New Testament. But he's anchoring what he is writing in what God said about marriage 4,000 years prior to. And again, she just read Genesis chapter 2 in Ephesians because what Paul is doing is he's basing everything he's going to say about marriage on Genesis chapter 2. So four th- think about that. 4,000 years, uh, marriage had not been outdated. In fact, even Jesus refers to Genesis chapter 2. In, 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 in uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, you can look it up later on. But I just want you to see 4,000 years later, there's no rewriting, there's no reworking, there's no refabricating, there's no redesigning marriage. We're still based on God's inception of marriage and how he started it. Well, guess what? 2,000 years after Jesus and after Paul, we don't have a better plan. Now, there might be new plans, but it doesn't mean it's a better plan. In fact, I will say this, that the most important relationship of your life is your marriage, and it is more important than your children, then don't go for some new innovation. Go for something that's tried and true. Let's not rewrite something that we didn't create and design and and, and build. It was something that God did. And so whenever you think about that, also realize that Paul was very countercultural in even how he deals with women. Now, you might go, oh, yeah, he's very suppressive of women. (laughs) Listen, you understand the day in which he was writing this, he was writing to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus, women were, were nothing more than a commodity to be traded. There were temple prostitutes uh, around the temple Artemis. I mean, it was literally legalized and spiritualized prostitution inside of Ephesus. And he is elevating women and he's elevating marriage and he's bringing it back. The Jews, they saw women as objects, not as people. They didn't even have legal rights in the community. Think about that. Think about that. No legal rights in the community. In fact, a good Jew would wake up every morning and thank God that he's not a Gentile, that he's not a slave, and that he's not a woman. So again, women are just objects in the Jewish mind. Greek minds, women are for sexual pleasure and for procreation, period. And in the Roman world, women were slaves. Women were slaves. In fact, there's, there's a quote, and I won't have time to read it today, but just realizing that women were nothing more than either property or for procreation or for my pleasure, and that's it. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. we got to understand, men, what women really are and how they should be valued. So here's what we want to point out, kind of from the very beginning, that a biblical marriage is countercultural. 
It was in Paul's day and it is in our time too. But I also want to say this, that a biblical marriage is purposeful. It is intended to mirror Christ's relationship and his love for the church. A biblical marriage is also possible. But I want to like put in this little parenthesis statement that as a follower of Christ, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Marriage can still be painful, but a healthy biblical marriage is absolutely possible. And so what Mike and I want to do is we want to be transparent with you, even with our own marriage, but at the same time, we want to be incredibly truthful. And so we're using the Bible as our blueprint for marriage. The thing is, is in all of mankind's innovations, mankind did not invent marriage. It is God's good design period. Therefore, we cannot rename it, redefine it, or reclassify it. We do not have the authority to make it what we want to be, no matter generationally, culturally, or what you want it to be personally. Paul said this in Romans 15, 4. He said, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do in this passage in Ephesians 5 is we're actually going to start at the bottom and then we're going to work our way up because what we want you to see is there are two key essential ingredients to this marriage. There are two priorities. And the thing is, is is that they are both the thermostat and the thermometer. They set the temperature in the marriage and they also measure the temperature in the marriage. So think about it like this. We're starting at the bottom of the passage and working our way up. Yes, because we're going to reverse engineer this. Because sometimes people don't get past the very first words of Paul. So I want you to, I want us to see where we're going, uh, so that we can aim at that and and go there. So do you want to read uh, Ephesians 5? Okay. So Ephesians 5 verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's where we're aiming. These are two calls to action, one for the male, one for the female. Now, and I also want to just pause here just long enough to say that I realize this room is full of different people, different people at different stages. Some are single and they're not, they're, they're not ready to mingle. Some are single and ready to mingle. Some are, are, are coming in this room and, and there's brokenness of a relationship. And this is not meant to be shameful in any way. In fact, there's going to be grace throughout this. But I, what we're going to do is we're going to present the blueprint Now, how you get to that, wherever you are in your relational journey, where you are in your marriage, that's going to be a building process for you to do. We can help however however we can. We can give you resources however we can. But let's just realize that there's a lot of different people in a lot of different stages and phases of their marriage. I mean, think about the Logan Logan and and Sky over here and just where they're at versus where we're at. So there's, 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 there's lots of grace and leeway in this. So let's talk about the blueprint and uh, the core necessities or the priorities of a marital relationship. So let's, let's deal with that. So here's, a life principle that you need to hang your hat on, okay? Because we do the first part well, but we don't do the second part well unless we are intentional about it. Passion and attraction start the relationship, but it's love and respect that strengthens the relationship. When I learn to live with love and respect, and it it will establish the relationship. It will deepen the relationship. 
So realizing that that's where we've got to go. If I'm only relying on that infatuation, that heart beating, that sweaty palm kind of thing, that's going to fade. It doesn't have to go away, but it's going to fade. So let's talk about the guys. Guys, I'm going to talk to you for a moment. Let's reverse engineer this. So here's the challenge for the guys. Priority number one is love your wife. I know that seems like elementary, right? Realize it's not elementary because Paul spends the majority of his time talking about it. And if it was elementary, he would just say it and move on. But clearly, we don't, aren't so well at this. There are four verses in this passage devoted to the women, the wives, okay? There are nine verses devoted to the men. Either we're slower learners or our job is harder, I don't know, but that's about two to one ratio of more verses instructing the men than are instructing uh, the ladies. And let's just jump in head first, pun intended, whenever Paul talks about that the men are the head of the wife. You can see that in the passage in uh, verse 22 and 23. And again, this is where a lot of people want to get off the bus. Look at that. Throw the verse up on, on the screen, guys. See, for husband, the husband is the head of the wife. Now, that's, again, for a lot of people, that's when they get off the bus. I don't need a head. I don't need a boss. I don't need a what. And I, and, I, and I get it. That is a power position. Headship is a power position. However, it's powerful to care and not to crush. Its power is to serve and not dominate. Its power is to facilitate, facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate. Its power is to bless and not to boss. The headship is more about our responsibility than it is our ruling. If we understand our role, then our wives, and we live in that from a biblical point of view, our wives will be willing to lean into our headship, if you want to go with that word, okay? Because it's in Scripture, okay? But hang on to this. I heard one woman say it like this. Yeah, I have no problem with my husband being the head as long as I can be the neck and tell that head where to go. Listen, men, we don't need to be a hard head, a knucklehead, a hot head, but we're to be a humble servant head. Women hate this passage for a lot of reasons, but if you'll give us a few moments today, a few moments of your life, we'll share with you 31 years of our life. I hope that you'll have a better understanding of this headship because it is not dictatorship. It is definitely not that. In fact, whenever you look at this, headship is actually not what we're called to in this passage. The call to action is not to headship, guys. So some of us never get past that first two verses because we want to emphasize headship. That's not the emphasis for the guys. The emphasis beginning in verse 25 is this imperative command to love your wives. In fact, you find four different times in these short verses the call to love. Love your wives. Husbands love uh, should love their wives. He who loves his wife loves himself. So the best way you can love yourself is to love your wife. And then notice again, he says what he said in the very beginning, to love his wife. The first two, and uh, the first one and the last one are imperative, present active imperative commands given to us, to the men, that we need to make priority number one, loving our wives and loving them well. 
Now, you'll also notice whenever you read through this passage, he talks a lot about the church. What's the church? Is it Mary? Is it the church? He's using the church and Jesus' relationship with the church, which don't think building, think people, okay? Think the, the family of God, okay? We're part of the family of God. So think about the relationship that we have with Jesus and how that is to parallel how we as a relationship should have with our wives, Man, and if you look at the life of Jesus, you can't see anything. But again, what we talked about in chapter, uh, chapter one is that we see the grace, or chapter three, we see the grace of God, the love of God. We see the, the mercy of God coming out. That's what should come out. A lot of people want to talk about when they talk about their marriage is distance. How long we've been married. We've just said it multiple times. 31, 32, 30, whatever it is. So we've talked about that. Distance is one indicator. It's, it's a, it's a quantitative, if you will indicator. But I want to know about the qualitative. What, what, what's the depth of your love? What, what does that look like? Not just the distance. Let's talk about distance, but hey, hey, uh, no, don't raise a hand. How many of y'all have a family member that's been married for 40, 50, 60 years, and they just don't like each other anymore? Uh, the giggles tell me everything I need to know. We've seen that. Listen, distance is one indicator. Depth is another indicator. And if we're to love our wife like Christ loved the church, guess what? How does Christ love? How, how deep, how wide? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, it says uh, that we uh, that may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So whenever I am setting up myself or measuring my love for Lori, does it look like Jesus' love for me? Is the height and the depth and the breadth, and is, is it there? Is it surpassing knowledge? Whenever you look at this, I want us to understand that there's lots of words in the Greek, and you've heard this before, phileo, eros. There's different words for love in the Greek language. But every time love and God are mentioned in the same sentence throughout the New Testament, hear me, it's always the word agape. It's in a divine form of love. The Stoics would refer to love and many times refer to it as a phileo or a brotherly love, that kind of love. That's not the kind of love that we're called to. There is four divine love moves that we can make, okay, when you look at this passage. And we're not going to read them all in total right now, but we're going to read them quickly as we go here. And understand, every time he talks about Christ loving the church, you can substitute the husband loving the wife. So one is a sacrificial love. That's how my love should be. If we're quantifying our love, what does my love for Lori look like, feel like? There ought to be a sacrificial element. It says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're told to love our wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself willingly up for her. Listen, what... what, struggles busts most marriages get on is they enter into marriage with a self-oriented view. You complete me. Make it about you making me happy. But Christ's love, love for the church is about making me whole. And that sacrificial love should mark us, gives us, here's, here's my definition, or used it for years, Giving sacrifices when I give up something I love for someone I love even more. 
There's so many ways that we can talk about how you can sacrificially love. And I don't have time to go into all that. So let's talk about number two, sanctifying love. There needs to be a sanctifying love in a marriage. When you think about what Gary Thomas said in his book, Sacred Marriage, he challenged us, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Now, those aren't, those aren't polar opposite to each other. But just because you pursue happiness in your marriage, you may never make it to holiness. But I promise you, if you pursue holiness in your marriage, you will be happy. But so many people pursue happiness, and when you don't make me happy, then you're my fault. You're my problem. And what we do need to do is make ourselves holy, starting out with sacrificial love, moving into a sanctifying love. In verse 26 and 27, notice this sanctifying element of our love, that he might sanctify her. These are all qualifying back to the love, sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word, that he might present to the uh, the church to himself or his bride uh, in splendor without spot or wrinkle in any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Guys, I want to ask you a question. Is your spouse more like Jesus because she's married to you or in spite of you. Let that sink in. Am I helping my wife look more and more like Jesus by the way I'm living and loving and how I'm living out my life? There's also a growing element. Um, Growing that love, verse 29, talks about nourishing. Um, There's there's an organic element to this love. Listen, you never arrive at the level of love. You're constantly nourishing it, caring for her soul in the relationship. But there's also number four, a protective kind of love where you will rally behind her. I can tell you this, that um, Lori cherished me well um, in the spring of this year. And I've shared with you the anxiety that I was going through. And one time, in the night, I was literally in a fetal position in the bed crying because of the anxiety that I was going through. And I can remember, I'm kind of bigger than her. Uh, I can still remember her taking me into her arms and holding me and then praying over me. She was cherishing me. She was protecting me. She was nourishing me. Guys, we got to do that with our spouses. In so many ways. The first ingredient Mike talked about pretty much to the husbands, which is love your wife. And so now we're going to flip it. And I want to speak to the women about the second one, which is respect for your husband. The anchor verse that we're using is verse 33, where it says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to back up to the beginning where Paul is talking here. But here's the reality is I know that when I get to the S word, submit, um, that you're going to react. For some women, okay. it's a four letter word. Okay. okay? And so, yeah, I hope that didn't offend anybody in here. Um, <laughs> But I know how you're feeling because at times, like, I feel the same way because I know how it's been used. I know how it's been misused. And sometimes I have the reaction that our one-year-old grandson has who has very little words. But when he gets frustrated, he just, he grits his four teeth and he clenches his fist. He's just like, he just shakes. And I'm like, I read this next passage 
I want you to know with a little bit of fear and trepidation. But as your sister, as a woman, and as your friend, what I want to do is I want to invite you, maybe even challenge you, to pause the emotions, to suspend any judgment, and with humility, let's just read the passage and simply ask, what does this even reveal about God, and what does it mean for me? So let's read verse 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, what I want to point out first is that the beginning of this phrase is basically, who are these words for? It says, wives submit to your own husbands. And so what I want to do is I want us to realize that this verse is not generally speaking to all women, to all men, or even to all wives, to any husband. It is specifically speaking, this relationship right here, your marital relationship, wife to a husband to submit to one another. I also realize that often this passage will bring up questions as to roles. So does that mean that all women are supposed to stay home? Women can't work outside the home. Does it mean that, that the uh, husband uh, can't help with the laundry? Like who's supposed to be like nurturing the kids and all these questions like surface. And I just want to point out that that is not what this is talking about. Right. Matter of fact, if we go to scripture, we'll see somewhat equally that wives are encouraged in first Peter chapter three to have this gentle spirit. But in the same chapter, it tells the husbands to deal with your, your wife in an understanding way. In Titus, it tells women to focus on nurturing your children. At the same time, the Bible tells men to not to provoke the children to anger. So the Bible is clear on some of these instructions and it's not necessarily one or the other. But as we move forward, I'm gonna point out that Paul is not a chauvinist, which I've heard many women say before. He's speaking to husbands in a culture who are domineering their women, their wives. But he's also speaking to women who are in a culture forcefully oppressed. So what he is really doing is he's giving freedom. He's actually saying, look, don't just succumb to the culture of being forcefully oppressed. Wives freely, willfully, as Christ Submit to your husband. So here's what I want to do. I want to point out a couple of things that submission is not, and I want to point out what submission is, okay? So number one, submission does not subtract equality. Submission is not about superiority versus inferiority. It's not about degrading or devaluing or dehumanizing, and it doesn't make you lesser than. Genesis 1, 26, 28 proves to us that men and women have equal importance and equal value because they are equally created in God's image. It says, then God said, let us make mankind, male and female, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he said to them, and it continues on. Submission does not subtract equality, but equal does not mean identical. John Stott said this. He said, the sexes are equal before God, but this does not mean that they are identical. The biblical perspective is to hold simultaneously the equality and the complementarity of the sexes. Listen, this is a good design. Mm -hmm. Number two, 
Submission does not mean that you are inadequate, inferior, incapable, or incompetent. There is nothing weak about this passage. In Proverbs 31, when I go there and it's talking about, where's this excellent wife? Like who can find her? Her value is so much more above jewels. It goes on in verse 17. It says, she dresses herself with strength. She makes her arms strong. She makes a profit. She reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid. She opens her mouth with wisdom. She looks well to the ways of her household. Her husband praises her. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. There is nothing weak, inferior, or emotionally limp that we are supposed to act like to some kind of authoritarian person. This is a willful, freely giving place within our hearts. I've heard it said this way, that um, submission does not mean women, that when you get married, you leave your brain at the altar. Number three, submission is this. Submission is an honorable posture of our heart that imitates Christ. Now, I know that it could easily be thinking, oh, great, like, just bring Jesus into it, right? So, like, our kids, when they were little, they would, they would ask Mike um, on maybe Saturday night or something like, Dad, what are you preaching on? And he would say, well, I'm preaching on Jesus. And then you would see the roll of the eyes. Like, it always came back to Jesus. But here's the thing about this is that it's not that Jesus is simply the center of all things, and he is, but he is the standard of what submission looks like. I want to point out two things about this. Jesus was equal with God. If we go to John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word was God. He was equal. John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father, we are one. But Jesus, in his equality with God, notice, submitted to God. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on a form of a servant. Listen, we will never fully understand submission until we first really, truly understand salvation. Mm -hmm. Paul is not picking on women. There are times that when Mike wanna leave the house that we may give our kids like a chore, like a to-do list, um, things to do, like Caleb, you gotta sweep the floor, Jordan, you need a vacuum, Uh, Josh and you go clean out the dog pen or whatever it would be. And we give these instructions, and as we're giving these instructions, they may interrupt us and go, yeah, but what's for dinner tomorrow night? Like, and I wanted to go like, focus. Listen, ladies, when you come to this passage in verse 22, where it says, wives, submit to your husband. You literally, I think you should write out to the the side, focus, and then draw an arrow all the way back up to the beginning of chapter five, where Paul is talking about imitating God and walking in love. And then go to verse 18. Because it tells them this, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. This is the command, okay? And then there's going to be this long sentence after this command, be filled with the Spirit. This is the command. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always for everything to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says to all Christians, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But what was the command? 
Be filled with the Spirit. And from being filled with the Spirit flows all of these things, including submitting to one another. So he's not just picking on women. This is a natural response for all believers who are Spirit-filled. So as your husband is called to this self-denying, self-dying kind of love for you, we are called to a selfishly, sacrificially submit to him. So the last one, submission is this. Submission is the calling on my life as a wife to respect, to honor, and to affirm my husband. But if I read submission and I think of myself as the starting place, then I'm starting in the wrong place. If we only hear wives submit as if it is oppressive to me, then we will miss out on an incredible, expressive opportunity to lift up and to honor someone else. When we selflessly give to honor and serve one another, it's not a devaluation of our worth. Rather, it's the recognition of the worth of someone else. Women, we do this, listen, if I asked your husband about respect, would he say that my, my wife holds me in high esteem, high, high regard, or would he use the opposite of respect, which is contempt and disgust and disdain for who he is? So women, we need to stop belittling and start building up. We need to stop communicating with nonverbal looks of disgust and start communicating with grace. We need to see our spouse, not as someone who can't measure up to all of our expectations, but rather someone whom God desires to do an incredible work within. All of these are what we call Jesus roles. Whether it's the man to the wife or the husband to the wife or the wife to her husband, we are both sacrificially, selfishly modeling what Jesus did for us. Mm -hmm. Last Friday night, yeah, it was a week ago, Friday night, Mike and I... Yeah, not this Friday not, night. Yeah, not Because we wouldn't ago. be here right now. No. Had yeah. we had that argument, I would not be on this stage with him right now. <laughs> but a week ago, Friday night, we had, I would say, probably one of the worst arguments we've had in a really long time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like it didn't last minutes. It lasted hours. Yeah, it, yeah absolutely. <laughs> um, it finally got to a place where I think, I mean, Mike has had to kind of get away for a long time. Yeah, I, I'm better if I can get away, cool off. <laughs> decompress, uh, yell at her more in my head, um, but also seek truth. And after my blood pressure came down, uh, being away, separated uh, for, again, some hours was a good thing. Um, One is because there was this little faint voice way, 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 way back there in my head that kept getting a little bit louder, a little bit louder. As, as my temperature went down, as the voices in my head shut up and things like that, it was this little statement, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. First Peter 3, 7, if you want to look it up later on, showing honor to the woman as to whether, as a weaker vessel. So the same respect that she's supposed to show me, I'm supposed to honor her. You see this reciprocal relationship here? Since you're heirs with you, since she's heirs with you, you know, the grace of life, 
so that your prayers would not be hindered. I realized I was in a position that I got to lead with love by seeking to understand before being understood. I was glad he got away because I thought he needed time to work out his problems. Um, we'll talk later. And, and while he was away, like I seriously, in my head, I could articulate all five things he needed to work on. And if he would just fix them, we wouldn't be having these issues. And the reality was like, even our argument was nothing of substance whatsoever. We couldn't even come back when we finally came back together. It was like, we can't even unpack this. There's not like a problem. It was just emotions. And a lot of it. And the thing is, is, even though, yes, there was a time that I prayed, God, show him the error of his ways. Like, God humbled my heart, and this thought kept coming to my mind. We're better than that. I even thought this. I'm better than that. Better than the immaturity I displayed. And my husband is better than We have a lens through which we can look at our marriage, and it's through the lens of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to submit? It means to give yourself up to someone else. What does it mean to love? It means to give yourself up for someone else. This kind of self-abandonment is not just a mystery in marriage. It is a picture of the gospel. I really don't... I feel sorry for people who build a marriage and that Jesus isn't clearly the blueprint of that. Because if we would just look more, remember we've been saying this past several weeks, if we would just listen, look, lead, and love a little bit more like Jesus in our marriages, how much easier, more beautiful, more powerful, more lasting marriage can be. I don't know where you're at, but where do you start today? Where do you go from here today? You got to start where you're at. And I would start with, do I have a relationship with Jesus that is not only justifying me, making me right with God, but it is sanctifying me, making me look, listen, lead, and love more like Jesus. Because if you get your junk figured out with Jesus' help, then it's easier to be married in the name of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? This is a message about marriage. But as much as it's a message about marriage, it's a message about our marriage to Jesus, our groom. Where literally the scripture calls the church, the believers, the bride of Christ. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? How vibrant, how real, how how growing is that relationship? That will become the foundation for all marital dating relationships moving ahead. Let's start with that. And if you're here today, I'm I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm just in a broken or dysfunctional or cold or stuck marriage and we can't get out of it, I want to pray for you. Here's what I want to pray. 
is that you will look more like Jesus today in that relationship. That's it. I want to look more like you, Jesus, in my marriage. Father God, we know that you loved us to the point of sacrificing your life for us. We know that you gave of yourself, all of yourself, willingly to make us your bride, the spotless bride of Christ, the sanctifying work of Christ, that nourishing and cherishing of what it meant for you to love your church. We love our spouses. Father, you also model what submission looks like to the Father. Father, would you help our marriages look a little bit more like Jesus today? And if we don't know Jesus right here in this space, Lord, would you make it clear? Would you help us to just pray a prayer like this? Jesus, I need you. I want you. I give myself to you right here and right now. Lord, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us? Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Sent.